0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is the Remnant Podcast. And uh, as I suggested earlier in the week with the, uh, the Rank Punditry Podcast, we're doing something a little weird for this second one of the week. Um, first of all, we're doing a second one of the week, which we haven't decided if we're going to keep doing. Uh, anybody who has feedback about that, whether we should do it, whether you think the Rank Punditry thing works... Whether you think I should actually—I don't know—be prepared. Um, <laughs> Heaven forbid. Yeah, that would um, that would be good to know. Seriously, as long as you're not overly cruel, feedback on that kind of stuff is very helpful. Jack, what's our email? The Remnant Pod. At, the Remnant pod at gmail.com. And our Twitter account at Jonah Remnant. And if people heap praise on this podcast, will are they likely to get repeated re- retweeted from our Twitter account? Yes. Okay. So we got the important things out. Also, uh, if you subscribe wherever find podcasts or subscribe from. And if you can give us more reviews, I would love to get to 2000 reviews. That would be great. But anyway, um, this again, this is a little weird because we just concluded um, upstairs here at the American Enterprise Institute, a special all curmudgeon panel of advice for young people. And I want to head off some criticism in advance. Uh, we used as meat props a studio audience comprised entirely of young professional people and interns from the American Enterprise Institute. I don't need to hear from anybody telling me this was not a representative sample of Americans or of virtually any other group than a random sample of people who decided that they wanted to come listen to us talk here at the American Enterprise Institute. There was some advice about professional stuff and career stuff that will be utterly useless to some people. And there was also be a lot of advice that I think is useful for everybody. We wanted to do it, and so we did it because, as Dr. Johnny Fever says, booger. So, but this week's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust, and we wanted to, I was supposed to do the ad in the middle of the podcast, and there was just really no moment to do it. And so instead, I want to talk about Donors Trust right now, and then we'll take you uh, away to the, the conversation. So if you use your charitable dollars to support freedom, you should know about Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. A donor-advised fund with Donor tru- Donors Trust lets you simplify your giving, receive excellent tax benefits, and add an extra layer of privacy, all with a partner that understands your values. Now, I will interject for a moment. And any young people who, just, who are tuning in to get this advice as 20-somethings uh, for the panel that we just did, you probably need to wait a little while longer before you use <laughs> Donor's Trust, but that's okay. For the parents who are listening to this thing because they want to then see if they should tell their kids to listen to it, this is more for you. So with the recent tax law changes, many experts are recommending donor-advised funds, and with good reason. Donor-advised funds act as your own private charitable savings account. Give, in, give now, take your tax benefit, and contribute later according to your schedule, so actually, if you are in your 20s and you want to accumulate a big nest egg so you can be a major philanthropist later in life, maybe it is for you. All donor advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. Go to donorstrust.org dingo to access, to access your free six reasons to use a donors advised fund guide and see for yourself why experts are recommending this fast growing tool for charitable givers. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus, two additional e-books to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. If you believe private philanthropy is the best way to strengthen civil society, Donors Trust is the partner you need to strategically meet your charitable goals. Visit Donors Trust, that's D-O-N-O-R-S-T-R-U-S-T dot org slash dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor advised fund and discover the smarter way to support the conservative values you believe in that's donorstrustorg slash dingo so one last thing before we we go to the uh, conversation that we just had i got when i came into the office a package from cafe press which does sort of made to order t-shirts and whatnot and somebody sent me there was no card in it so i don't know exactly who sent it i'll search again when i get upstairs they sent me a Slash Dingo t-shirt, and it's awesome. And I want to say thank you to whoever that was. You are helping me fulfill the my desire to make this even quirkier, more culty podcast. Actually, we got two of them, so Jack gets one. Oh, really? Yeah. You didn't tell me that. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, needed some surprise.
1: Uh, oh, that's but they're, like, both,
0: they're both extra large, so you can use it as, like, you know, a sort of Charles Dickens sleeping
1: gown or something. Uh, okay. So, like, the the genuine emotion that you just got from me here is like when uh, in Kramer versus Kramer, when uh, Dustin Hoffman throws the silverware, whatever it was, at the wall without telling Meryl Streep that he was going to do that. So it's really authentic. I yeah. did not know.
0: No, I mean, you're you're verklempt. You're overcome. <laughs> it's really it's a wonder to behold. So, anyway, all that said, any other questions, you'll get the show notes for this episode at com. Um, thanks to everybody who pre-ordered, who's been pre-ordering the Suicide of the West. It means a lot to me, and um, hopefully uh, you'll tune in next week. Uh, we're going to have Ross Douthat in here, and if people say they want more rank punditry, maybe we'll do that too. Anyway, here we go with the program. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast, and uh, we have a very special edition of uh, the podcast this week. Um, for those of you who might remember, uh, a while back, I had Charles Murray on, and we talked about all sorts of things about life. And then I had Steve Hayward on, and we talked about all sorts of things about life. And one of the things where the t- these two guys, these two curmudgeonly old guys, overlap is that they have a lot of wisdom to share with young people. And at Steve's behest... Um, I agreed after I canceled out a fairly large debt uh, to do a special podcast where the three of us would get together and talk about uh, just offer advice to youngins. So we're for the since all of you in the listening audience can't tell, we're actually sitting on a stage here at the Versailles of think tanks, the American Enterprise Institute, uh, with an audience of some thirty odd uh, young and youngish people, and. Um, Uh, We're just going to have a conversation for a little bit, and then we're going to open it up to questions from young staffers and interns and others here at AEI, and that's about it. So let me introduce the guests. Uh, First, we have uh, Charles Murray, who is now an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, author of Too Many Books to List, and you probably already listened to that podcast so you know who he is, Um, and if you go to any sort of normal liberal arts college, you've already burnt him in effigy, so it doesn't really matter, Um, and then... Not that you get people can tell out there, but uh, in the middle we have uh, Steve Hayward, who is an old friend of mine, former scholar here at the McGregor Enterprise Institute, a uh, man of many uh, skill sets. Uh, he's one of the only Straussian data geeks I've ever met. And um, you're now at Berkeley, is that right? Yeah, I'm an yeah. inmate at Berkeley. Yeah, so he's the house Goy at Berkeley. and. Uh, Uh, Charles is sort of the leader of the movement of of giving advice to young people because he actually wrote a book, Giving Advice to Young
2: People, called... Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead, based on the proposition that a lot of people who run think tanks are a lot more curmudgeonly than the interns and research assistants and aspiring young researchers realize because we try to present ourselves as being not really hit, but at least we try to present ourselves as being friendly and affable. And in For some so- of us,
0: it takes more effort than others. Uh,
2: yeah, <laughs> and, and, and inside, we're actually judging everybody pitilessly, but we never tell them what we're judging them about. So that's what made me write the book. Okay,
0: so um, to start things off, why don't you tell where you got this idea from? Because I, I seem to recall you ran into Irving Crystal in the elevator one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was... That was uh, one of the most terrifying events of my life. Irving Kristol was the grand old man of uh, neoconservative intellectuals, and he was a good friend, and Irving was a sweet guy. Uh, So it came as a surprise when one day I had come into AEI in jeans and a flannel shirt, because I was just going to come into the office. I was going to pick up uh, something and leave. And as I was in the 10th floor of our old office building, the elevator doors open, and out steps Irving Kristol which didn't particularly bother me then, but all at once I realized he is looking me up and down, and he said, what have we here, and walked (laughs) off. And from that day to the next, uh, until he died, I never went near AEI without a coat uh, and tie on, lest I run into him again. However, I have to say, John, of the more proximate, The reason I wrote the book was that uh, we had at AEI a weekly tip on usage, English usage, for interns and research assistants. Writing usage. The writing usage, which was great. But that gave me a chance to address the same audience with my first tip in what became the series of the curmudgeons tips, which was to excise the word like from your spoken English don't even use it to say, I like ice cream. You may approve of ice cream. I don't want to hear that word out of your mouth. So that, that got, got me started.
0: Okay. And so... What
2: about
3: likability? I mean, we don't do that either. So, okay. All
0: right. You know uh, what I mean. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess I'll, uh, I'll start by just asking a general question. What do you think of these damn kids today? <laughs>
2: I want them to get off my lawn. <laughs> I, I've well, Steve, you were about to say something.
3: No, nope. I'm always about to say somethings, but I don't need to. Do You think? Right, so I, I, do,
0: think do you, I think there's think, a kid, the, forget the, the the overachieving type A Ivy League kids who are sitting in this room right now because there's something like eight thousand you know applications for every internship and resume mm-hmm. and all that, every job every position here. Um, generally speaking, what do you think of the damn millennials? Do you think they're worse off, better off, different, the same?
2: No, I want to focus on these overachieving uh, kids we have in front of us right here. Okay, I don't know how true this is of, of many of you. For a lot of you, this is your first job. Okay. And when I by first job, I don't mean your first job after graduation. I mean your first job, period, for some of you, not all of you. And for a lot of you who are interns here in college, why aren't you out waiting tables in Estes Park or something? And the reason I say that is that... A lot of millennials come to a place like AEI. They are not used to supervisor-subordinate relationships. They're used to people who who are encouraging and uh, patient and kind and all that. And the idea that somebody's going to say to you, "Do this," and not say please, and you bring it back to them, and they aren't going to thank you, uh, is is a strange thing. And a lot of the things that are just standard part of an office. Not only supervisor-subordinate relationships, but uh, uh, staying late when something needs to get done, hmm. uh, even though you aren't getting paid. There, there are a variety of things that if you haven't had job experiences before, you're kind of at sea. It's, it's a very different kind of relationship than the high school teacher-student relationship or, the, or these days the professor-student relationship.
0: What was your first summer job?
2: Uh first summer job was, well, I delivered papers starting at eight or nine years old. And then I worked uh, as a stock boy in a f- shoe store, and I worked as a plumber's assistant, lots of different things. Steve, want anything to add
3: to any of this? Uh, no, only that I, f- I, I was disqualified from Charles' bubble quiz. I don't know if you remember this, because you know, one of the questions uh, to determine if you're not in a bubble is, have you ever worked on a factory floor? And I said, yes, I have. And the, the problem why it disqualified me was that my father owned the factory. So that, that didn't quite work, right? So then my first summer job was okay. I was assembling aircraft parts. Yeah, <laughs>
2: but you still got to see what the factory floor was like. Yeah. And, and you weren't sitting over there sipping champagne and eating hors d'oeuvres. Yeah. You were assembling parts right. on the factory yeah. floor. No, that's right. And I presume you
3: were expected not to screw up. Uh, oh, very much so. And paid minimum wage. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what I... Uh, I like to think, uh, well, first of all, I don't want to, the thing that worries me most about an event like this is coming across of um, the old curmudgeonly you say of just giving the standard, eat your vegetables and be sure to floss twice a day advice, right? Uh, uh, what I think is, uh, I try to think about the challenges now and the opportunities for this generation, which are much larger than, you know, even for you, 20 years ago when you got out of college. And Now it's 30, almost 40 years for me. Uh, and I came to Washington and uh, just the, 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 what do you say, embarrassment of riches uh, and much more opportunities now. On the other hand, there's some challenges with that. Part of that is the nature these days of social media. Uh, it's now easier to start a media career just by getting 200 Twitter followers, right? And uh, I've just, I would have absolutely gone nuts for that, getting out of college. And I also think that might have been bad. Yeah, And I don't necessarily want to start saying rules like get off social media one day a week. I mean, it might be a good idea, but it's not so much that. But I actually thought what might be most useful are some of the lessons that I think are timeless. You're working with mentors, how do you get better at writing, um, getting out of town. When Charles and I were talking about this, getting out of town, not just the Washington town, but in your hometown, whatever town you're in. And you know, you went to Prague for a while and uh, the Starving writer. I worked as a truck driver for a while. You go off in the Peace Corps to Thailand.
2: I was in Thailand for five years, yeah.
3: And you you like to say, you know, you tell people here, get a one-way ticket, to some exotic culture. I say, come to San Francisco.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, my retort to that is, for some of you, San Francisco would be an alien culture. For some of you, Topeka, Kansas would be an alien culture. And uh, I guess these are, I guess most of you are probably familiar with the bubble uh, quiz. And uh, I won't ask you to, to say what your scores were, <laughs> but I think that test actually. Well, for is determin- listeners, let's explain what the bubble quiz is. The bubble quiz quickly. is 25 items. This was part of Coming Apart. And I was trying to persuade my readers that a lot of them, who were members of the overeducated elite, hadn't a clue about what ordinary America was like. And so it had questions like Have you ever walked in a factory floor? Uh, have you ever known? Have you ever had a personal friend who was an evangelical Christian? Uh, have uh, you, uh, or your spouse, this is for older people, have you ever bought a pickup truck? Uh, but the most important question, I guess, for this audience would be, have you ever held a job that caused a body part to hurt at the end of the day? Other than your writing hand or stapling hand or Xeroxing <laughs> hand. <laughs> or your ass is sore because you've been sitting all yeah, day. Yeah, a, yeah, uh, Carpal uh,
0: tunnel doesn't necessarily <laughs> count. Yeah.
2: No, and, and the reason for that kind of question is, is simply because uh, if you've never held that kind of job, there's an argument for saying you you don't know what work is. That that uh, the kind of thing that we get to do. I never look at the clock and say, "Gee, it's only two thirty in the afternoon. I've got another two and a half hours to go." That's just not part of my life. And we're awfully lucky to yeah. live those that, that kind of life. So oh, yeah,
3: I, I always say it's two thirty. Crap! I can't believe how much more I still have to get done by five <laughs> o'clock.
2: Right? Um, so,
0: yeah, I, I guess I should, you know because we don't know where the questions are going to go, um, just sort of tell my story. I came to Washington by accident. Um, after college, I had sort of a weird college experience, and um, I really needed something uh, different to do. Some friends of mine and I tried, flirted with the idea of starting a newspaper in New York, and to say we failed is way too complimentary, and we never got it far enough to fail, um, And I decided I needed an adventure, so I went off to Prague. This was was still when, it was still Czechoslovakia. Berlin Wall had only recently gone down. Vaclav Havel had called for young people to go. And uh, as Steve alluded, I I went there to go be a starving writer. I sort of batted 500. I didn't starve and I didn't write. Um, But I had a fantastic time and um, got got to sort of restart my life in some ways and think about what I wanted to do with it because I was quite a screw-up. Unlike you guys, I was rejected from every college I applied to. And, um, except the one I ended up going to. And, um, and I came to Washington because my girlfriend at the time was going to law school here and uh, I fell over backwards into a job working for a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Started as an intern, um, then replaced this guy Tevi Troy, who we know, who is now... Um, a big mucky muck in Washington, and um, it, was, uh, it was quite a learning experience. And um, one of the takeaways I got from, and I have a lot of takeaways, which I'm sure will come up in a little bit, um, but one of the takeaways I got, which is somewhat related to Charles's point about hard work, is, and I'd say this to interns, I give, Jack can attest to this, I give the same speech to interns every time they come in. Um, in Washington... For all I know, you were the first undergraduate editor of the Harvard Law Review. I don't give a rat's ass. Um, If someone tells you to do something that you think is beneath you, do it anyway and do it with enthusiasm. Because one of the things that um, hardworking, really busy people, and this is true of campaigns, this is true of political consulting firms, this is true of television production, all these things, these are the only places I've ever really worked as a semi-grown-up. It's definitely true in journalism. Uh, really busy people, politicians, editors, whoever, um, if they give a twenty two year old a job, go get coffee, go get dry cleaning the, um, and they do and they come back and they do it well, and they don 't make you feel like a jerk for doing it um, they don 't say the busy person doesn 't say, "Oh well, this kid 's only good for getting coffee they say, "Ah, this kid solved the problem, and very quickly the universe of problems that they give you to solve expands and expands until you find the limit of your abilities. And this is how the most successful people, young people in Washington, get ahead. They all start basically in the same place. But the ones who say, oh, I'm too good to answer phones at the receptionist desk or I'm too good to go Xerox things, they, they send a different signal than um, the young person thinks they're sending. The young person thinks, I'm saving myself for the important work because I have such a fantastic mind. The old person is thinking well, you're just a pain in the ass. And um, the people who leap with gusto into solving problems occupy the space in their employer's head as a problem solver, and they get to do more and more and more stuff.
2: And, And the converse is true as well. And so if I have a research assistant or an intern, and I give them a job, and it isn't done terribly, but it isn't done as well as I could have done it myself, and I'm not talking about complex jobs. Right. I'm talking about things where you just pin it down or don't pin it down. You actually don't get a second chance uh, because I don't mentally say, I'm going to cut down on the things I'm willing to give this person. But my memory is, well, that didn't work out. And so right. I just don't ask you to do that kind of stuff again because I figure I don't, I don't want the bother. Yeah, this, this is one of my big problems with interns.
0: Um, I've been an intern. I've interned on... Two continents, Um, uh, and is that interns often create more work for you than they do for you? Because you want them to have a meaningful experience. If they do something bad, you kind of like, "Uh oh well, I can't rely on them to do the stuff I need them to do. So you end up giving them make work, which then you have to supervise, and it's a bad situation. Um, And so you know, the things you do, the first, you know, this is this is a curmudgeonly thing. First impressions matter a lot. And someone who comes across as can-do in the beginning gets a lot more goodwill than someone who screws up the first time and and gets defensive about it.
3: Well, let me ask you a question, Joan, by way of of, uh, then drawing out ways that young people can, whether it's here or anywhere, can get the most out of a mentor-mentee relationship. Uh, So what are some things that Ben Wattenberg either said to you or Things that you observed that stuck with you was important. I mean, I know you've told me about his putting ketchup on on, uh, on noodles, but yeah. I, not that kind of thing. I mean,
0: I mean, uh, well, I mean I, I, so I have a problem. I have many.
3: Or if you don't want to do pick another mentor.
0: Yeah, see, I, have, I have many hilarious stories about Ben, but I have very few stories about uh, positive mentoring about Ben. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and um, I'm still grateful for Ben for the opportunities that he gave me, um, but I can't be. I can't honestly say he was a great and powerful. Uh, well,
3: th- th- I mean, there's the old Yogi Bear epistemology, which you could observe a lot just by watching. Are there things you learn to avoid by yes, watching? Yes, there, were,
0: well? there okay. were a lot of, uh, there <laughs> were a lot of negative Look, I'll be very blunt about this. Ben was not a mean person, he wasn't a bad person. Um, he did not treat people who worked for him great. Oh, okay. And, um, and he was. Uh, obsessed with some things that I don't think people in Washington should be obsessed with. Fame, being on TV, all of these kinds of things, which I think can steer you really wrong. I mean, if you want to be on TV, that's right, I'm on TV. But uh, I think it was Larry King who somewhat hypocritically, given that I, I think he's on Russia today now, um, <laughs> but he always said, you should care about being on TV, but not care too much. And Ben cared too much about that kind of thing. And he had me do, um, you know, I mean, I felt like Jerry Maguire sometimes pleading with him, saying, help me help you, because <laughs> the things he had me do, things I would never dream of making my research assistant Ooh. Jack do, I don't think... I, I can't even tell some of the stories. They're so horrifying. I um, wish you would. <laughs> um, but, uh, 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 you know, in terms of mentoring, I mean, Charles has been... I've got a
2: better. Okay, I've had okay. yeah. good better. Uh, by the way, you can learn a lot from having a bad boss. You learned a lot from boss. I learned a, a great deal, but... And also... Uh, It it may be, I would like to think it's like having been a a, a wait person in a restaurant, which is it reduces the chances of you being a jerk as a customer if you've ever been on that Mm. side. And that might be true of you as well. I had another kind of experience uh, with a mentor who was a guy named Paul Schwartz when uh, I was at this point about three years out of college and I was doing research in Thailand and he was the project director. And Paul was a beautiful writer, just this crystalline prose kind of eccentric but it was so good that I wanted to imitate it and I simply imitated him I, 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 and I knew I was imitating him but my writing was getting better as a result of that but, uh, and this gets to another thing But you should know this yourself from your own favorite teacher the one who had the most impact on you he was tough and uh, in terms of <laughs> not scattering around oh this is wonderful Charles Uh, In fact, there was the most memorable uh, instance of mentoring. But the fact I remember it to this day is important. I've gotten pretty good. We're now fast forward five or six years later. I'm project director and research projects myself, still working for Paul, who's president of the organization. I write a uh, a, a report for our government sponsor. They're ecstatic about it. They've never gotten anything so good. I get back to the office after presenting it to them. And Paul says, I've been looking for you all morning. Yes. I read, I read the report you submitted today. Yes. It's the worst thing you've ever written. <laughs> At which point I said, the sponsor loved it. And Paul said, they're not competent to judge. <laughs> and and, and uh, it was a case that I knew that I had someone out there that, that was going to read it, and it had damned well better be good. And it was not the compliments that made the difference. It was, it was you're working for somebody who is really good at what they do. And if that's the case, if you were lucky enough to get a person like that, and I bet there are some, probably some ones at AEI like that, who maybe don't treat their employees well either. But you can be really good at what you do and also be a pain to work for in some respects, but you can learn so much from uh from watching what they do well. The Devil Wears Prada, mm. Mm. Uh, I bet that was a, that's, that's yeah. a classic case. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I do have some examples I can think of in a second, but uh, you, you actually had a fairly glorious mentor.
3: Well, I've had several. I, 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 we do a sequel to his, uh-huh. and then we can talk about Stan, or one or others. Um, I had a similar experience. It was late in graduate school, and I took a tutorial from Leonard Levy, a very famous historian, won the Pulitzer Prize. And it was one of those tutorials where every week you had to turn in at least five pages. Wednesday at 5 p.m., and he was nocturnal, he was up all night, and then Thursday afternoon you'd go in for an hour, and he would critique your paper, and I thought, you know, I'd had things published, I thought I was a pretty good writer. I had, by the way, and we could talk about this some, I'd experiment with lots of different styles. For a while I copied Buckley, and I'd have mutatus mutandis, Latin phrases <laughs> in the middle, and that's not a bad way of learning your own style when you're young, but I thought it was basically a pretty good writer. And. First paper comes back, and I sit down, and it's just all marked up in red, and he's just slashed And he had his absolutely rigid rules, never use the passive voice, which is good always write in the active voice, uh, but you know, sometimes passive voice is easier, it just flows out of you, and he was absolutist on that. And uh, so that semester was the longest and most stressful semester of my graduate school career. It was high anxiety, I had trouble sleeping. It was like basic training we were talking about. It's something now I wouldn't have traded for anything because it really improved my writing. By the way, my variation of your one is, um, you know, he would... uh, Oh, one of his rules also was, which I don't follow, was never begin a sentence with the word it. You know, it is the case. You could not do that. If you did, he'd circle it at explanation points and you're all, you know... And then of course there was the substance, right? You have to argue about that. Uh, and so one day I'm frustrated and he'd won the Pulitzer prize and I brought in a couple of his books. I said, "You know, Professor Levy, I found these examples of passive voice sentences at the beginning a sentence with it." And he just glares at me and he says, "This is do as I say, not as I do." You know, we're not going to argue about this, right? Um, and yeah, you know, that's a yeah, the, the tough person who will really put you through your paces is the, one of the best things you can ever have in life, whether it's a drill sergeant in the army
2: or Swartz or... But you cannot break into tears when we do it. Because, uh, or, or you can't, you, you can't uh, betray the slightest uh, sense of being upset because then first we'll feel bad because we're, we're nice guys at heart. Second we'll be worried about you filing some sort of suit against us. and, uh, and it, is also, it is noticed as well when you take that kind of stuff and don't flinch. It's, and th- here's a general rule that I guess, I and I have this one in Curmudgeon's Guide. When I was, uh, you know, in my 20s and so forth, I, I thought, how am I ever going to get ahead? Because there are all these smart people and able people, and it's, there's got to have to be some really lucky break. It's not really true. What Jonah was saying about getting noticed just for doing a simple job really well, good bosses notice that kind of thing. And they do give you more stuff. It's actually kind of easy to get noticed. And another reason is just simple volume of work, that uh, the three of us, you know, we're really lousy examples in terms of, you know, most of us are overweight. We have cocktails every night. We. <laughs> Uh, some of the strengths of smoke cigars. Sometimes in the morning. <laughs> uh, there's, yeah, there's a, there, there's a variety of ways in which we are probably not the uh, the best role models. But uh, the 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 thing that we have all experienced in one way or another is people giving us responsibility because we came back and we had done it. We had made their lives easier, and it's sort of a surefire cinch as as getting noticed. But you,
0: know, you bring up. Another point, which I think is really important. So, like, I've been...
2: My first
0: op-ed was in the Wall Street Journal in 1992 when I was 23 or something like that. And I've been writing either freelance or professionally full-time ever since then. And in that time, you know, I've been at National Review coming up on 20 years now. I was at AEI in the 90s, and I came back in, what 2011, something like that. And in that time, I've seen a lot of really talented hot to trot, young people come and go. And it's funny, whenever I talk to people like Byron York or Rich Lowry or Ramesh Panuru, people who've been sort of doing the same thing I do all this time, one of the one of the things we always talk about, not always, because we're usually talking about our lousy parking or something, but um, is so much of this job, like the job I do, is being able to grind it out every week, right? I and mean, a lot of people say, oh, I want to be a writer. And then I say, well, you know, what, what are you writing, or what have you written? And they say, "Well, nothing." I'm, I'm just, but I'm, I'm I want to be a writer. And I said, "Well, you know, one of the first things that writers do is write, and they got to do a lot of it. And talking about writing is not the same thing as writing. And in Washington, I've seen so many, you know, sort of uh, shooting star, young wannabe pundits, wannabe columnists, wannabe reporters who have who land one story or one op-ed or get one." Uh, you know, sort of hit on TV that makes them briefly famous, and then they don't want to do the work. And the thing is, it's grinding it out. I mean, I've written, forget all the other stuff I write. I write eight syndicated columns a week. I mean, eight, seven, eight syndicated columns a month, plus this newsletter thing, plus these other things. I've been doing that for 15 years. And if you don't have it in you, you're gonna get ground, you're just, you're just gonna fall by the wayside, and that's fine. Um, and this sort of gets me, when you're asking for mentorship stuff, for a while I was a television producer, and in the beginning I really, really enjoyed it, because I never planned on doing what I'm doing. And this was really cool, I was doing stuff for PBS, I was producing Ben Wattenberg's television show on PBS, I was doing documentaries, I was traveling, you know, to Europe and to Japan, and, you know, I got to walk into cool places behind the scenes and do the sort of, you know, light, you know auteur kind of act, and it was a great line to hit on girls with because I was a producer for PBS, which just sounded so sensitive. <laughs> and um, you know, they immediately thought I was doing documentaries about polar bears and their van- vanishing environment. You know, <laughs> instead, I was doing documentaries about the declining fertility rate in Japan, but that's a different issue. And, um, and for a while, I really loved it. And when my learning curve was really steep, I really enjoyed it. And then about um, three, four years into it, it really started to wear me down, in part because I hated managing people. I'm not bad at it, but I'm not great at it either. It takes effort from me. And, um, but also, the final product of television is so team-dependent. You've got this whole group of people. You have, to, you have to worry about the talent, such as it was. You have to worry about you know, the, what the cameraman wants, what your executive producer wants, what the editor can do, what the cameraman can do, what your, AP, what your associate producers screw up or don't screw up. What the limits of the technology are, and by the end of it, I just felt that the final product didn't really reflect much of me. I didn't feel I was in it. And the thing I love about writing is whether it's good or bad, what's on the page is friggin' yours, right? I mean, the, it's almost completely transparent between your frontal lobe and the written word. And you know, an editor can improve it, and you should always welcome good editors. Um, but I just didn't love it, so I went into my boss at the time, who's uh, we were renting space from the old AAI building. And he was a long-time television producer. And he told me the story about how his mom was a successful painter. And, you know, she's not in the Louvre or anything, but she made money selling seagulls flying over beaches to sell to rich people in New England and made a good living at it. And, um, and she always used to tell people... And he told me the story about how his mom would always say, you know, if you want to be a painter, before you think about the style you want to paint in or the subjects that you want to paint, you got to like smushing the paints. And what she meant by that was you just have to like the smell of the paint and the feeling you get when you get a fresh canvas. You have to look forward in the morning to doing it. Because if you don't, you're eventually going to burn out, even if you're good at it. And um, it was really valuable advice. Because I was a pretty good television producer. I wasn't great, but I was good at it. And I thought it was a cool thing to be. But at the end of the day... I, I didn't like smushing the paints. And it, it bored me. I like smushing mm. the paints on writing. There are days where I don't want to write because I'm tired or, there's nothing in the, or the news is depressing. But at the end of the day, that's, that's what I figured out I wanted to do. But part of the lesson of this is not to immediately rush to find mm. your paint smushing opportunity. Um, I would not take back a single day of my time being a television producer. Because I learned an enormous amount from it, and the most valuable thing I learned from it was that I didn't want to be a television producer. And unless you try different stuff in your 20s, uh, you're not going to discover what, the th- what, your, what your paints to smush are.
2: That, I think that's, if you take away nothing else from this session, take away that. And, and maybe this is something that we ought to put on the table as something to talk about, and that is finding the thing you love to do.
0: Because then it's not work.
2: Because mm. then it has never worked, and the image of you have to like smushing the paint, um, I do a lot of quantitative data analysis with big databases, and I clean my own databases uh, if, if you don 't know what that means, you know, you have to you've got, you 've got to download the data, and there are all sorts of transformations, the variables, and there 's just a lot of stuff you know get the missing values right. I never turn that over to research assistants, and one of the reasons is i don 't trust them to do it, right. <laughs> I can do it better. But I finally decided some years ago, I enjoy that.
1: Yeah. I even I, enjoy- I think it's
2: witchcraft. <laughs> no, and, and when, in the days when you still had to Xerox articles, technical articles when you did research, mm. I liked going to the Library of Congress and Xeroxing the damn articles. And, oh. and so if you want to smush sh- sh- the paint, you hold that thought in your mind. But also systematically figure out what itches you like to have scratched. Uh, in terms of your work. I remember one summer I did, uh, I was working as a guy in a radio station in Rochester, New York. And if you're working for a radio station and you're covering things, you get to be behind the scenes and you get to go backstage and so forth. And I discovered I loved being backstage. I loved being behind the tape or of or, or a police line or something like that. Well, if if you sense something like that in yourself, it says something to you about maybe this is some. I ought to find jobs that fit that. Uh, do you like uh, do you like the sense at the end of the day that you've accomplished something specific and you have closure, or are you okay with spending long periods of time? Uh, Charles Krauthammer and I. He used to play chess a lot before he was on Special Report every night. And uh, I like to play long games, and he liked to play short-timed games. <laughs> well, Charles Krauthammer has never written a book either. Uh, he's written collections of essays. And uh, one time when I'd written a short book called What It Means to Be a Libertarian, he looked at that and he said, well, I could write this. you know." <laughs> but uh, no, he but he, it but turns out he then signed a contract with publishers to write some books, and eventually, he says, "I or like." Crystal never wrote a book. I like the sense of doneness. Yeah. yeah. And I can do without doneness for. F- okay. So so figure out. Yeah. It's not that one is bad and the other one is good. It is that the thing you love to do is going to depend on idiosyncratic things about you. Uh. Anyway, what you said, write every word of it. Steve. Uh.
3: Smooshing Paints put me in the frame of mind of, I, I try to resist giving reading lists just of all our favorite things, although we might want to do a couple of highlights, but Churchill's charming essay called Painting as a Pastime. It's very short, very much worth reading. You know, he took up painting at a low point in his life and we've got pretty good at it. But the prologue to that, it's a wonderful essay. He talks about how uh, some people's work is their joy and their fortunes favored few. So the rest of his work is work, and it's hard. and you, know, you need That's why painting is a good thing, or find something like that as an avocation. Uh, but something else that one of you said prompted a thought. It was one of my pieces of advice from my first great mentor, M. Stanton Evans, especially for people in Washington. It's changed direction slightly.
1: Sure.
3: No, but- uh, Stan liked his uh, adult beverages, and like to go out at the end of the day to a bar, and it was fun to go along with him. This is why
0: you think I'm like Stan Evans.
3: <laughs> no, that's not the reason. No, I'll get to some of those reasons in a bit. Uh, uh, although it's another one I'll mention. Those. Uh, what's that cliche these days? Dance like no one is watching. Uh-huh. Stan danced like no one was watching. And <laughs> okay, uh, but anyway, I'd be out with him, and I'm you know I'm your ed very young, and uh, you know he's he grand old man of the conservative movement, conservative journalism. And I'm wanting to talk to him about. God, I can sit him all these questions and this and this thing and all the rest. And he's a very patient, kindly old man. And one day he said, Steve, let me give you a piece of advice. He says, uh, you should turn it off at six o'clock. The politics will always be there tomorrow. Yeah. And I had taken that to heart over the time. And I wasn't thinking it was annoying him, but he did that. It was his practice. He used to talk about sports and movies. He loves sports, basketball, and movies. And uh and, uh, you know, I certainly remember, uh, and I didn't start practicing that for a long time, but it was always fun to go out to a bar with your friends, and you might meet a liberal, and suddenly you've got a big argument, you want to have a big fight, and it's fun. And yeah, I do some of that, you should. But I think uh, that's worth taking to heart that, especially if you're working in the hothouse of Washington, turn it off at 6 o'clock and
2: yeah, talk I mean, and do something else. Night person. Because, well, okay, because, you right. see, if you're a night person, yeah. you may do your best work from 6 until midnight. Yeah, but
0: but, but this, this does raise a point, and I do want to get to the audience because they're you know, furiously taking notes, which makes me very self-conscious. <laughs> um, uh, there is There are some people, friends of mine, who do what they do for a living to make the stuff that really matters to them possible. Right? There is nothing at all dishonorable about that. You know, if what you really love is... Riding horses and hiking or traveling the world and all that kind of stuff, or water skiing you know whatever whatever your hobbies are that you love and they're expensive or sailing whatever you know um, uh, there's nothing wrong with taking a job that pays well that lets you do the things that you want to do with your life you know not everybody has to find a job that gives them that fills a the hole in their soul and gives them meaning in life right i mean uh as, as Charles will test. that's one of the places you get meaning and satisfaction in life. And truly picking a job that makes you miserable is a bad idea. But picking a job that pays the bills and it helps you provide for your family because that's what you care about more, that's okay too. And it's sort of what reminds me of when, when Steve says, because I don't want to just do this as career advice, but yeah. when Steve says leave it, you know, turn it off at 6 o'clock, big chunks of the most important stuff in your life happens when you're not working. You know, and you know whether it's faith, family, friends, and all that kind of stuff, and that's a really important thing, particularly in Washington. And I, I really mean this: is that um, don't think that because your job is so important that it's okay to lose your friends, whether they're from college mm-hmm. or the ones you make you may you have now. If you think these are people that you want to have in your life, it takes a little bit of work to keep them in your life, because everyone's busy, people start dispersing around the country and all this kind of stuff, and one of the few eternal truths of of life is you can't make new old friends. And so among my closest friends are these guys I was a television producer with, and my first intern at AEI when I was a research assistant, this guy, Doug Anderson, is one of my closest friends. Another one, Nick Schultz, who we both know, worked for me as an associate producer, Um, Scott McLukas, who was the best man at my wedding, Was um, you know worked with me here. And I knew some of them before they came to work with me. But um, those are the guys, when things are bad for me, I rely on. And they're not necessarily helpful for my career or any of that kind of stuff. But they're helpful for your own life. And uh, too many kids, I think, are in too much of a rush. When I say kids, I mean it really in the most condescending way possible. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, too many kids are in such a rush to get to some goal that they start jettisoning people from their lives, um, from college, from the early, you know, from high school even. And some of them are worth jettisoning, to be honest. I mean, you know, I had a lot of bad habits when I was in high school, and uh, one of the reasons I left New York was to get away from those habits. But um, a lot of them aren't. And there's going to come a time in your life, 10 years, 15 years from now, you're going to be like, damn it. I wish they were still around because they're the only people who knew you when you were really sort of still you in a lot of ways. And they're very valuable people in your life. And it has nothing to do with careers. It has nothing to do with work. It just has to do with having a a rich and fulfilling life.
3: So I'll give you one of other Stan's pieces of advice that I think is good for young people. Um, He would say, it is deep voice. Steve, when you're young, you should be conservative. And when you get older, you should become more conservative. <laughs> so that's a good piece of advice. We should pass that along yeah, the next generation. Check, right? <laughs> okay.
0: So I think now we're going to, is it okay we open up the questions? Uh, so all I ask is that you wait for the microphone. And if you can make your statement in the form of a question, I would appreciate it. Um, but other than that, and you can identify yourself or not. You can be like some stealth person on this podcast. It won't, it, I don't care.
1: Before we do that, I'm going to abuse my position blatantly. Uh, but in, This for, is Jack
0: Butler, for those <laughs> listening out there.
1: No one cares who I am. Uh, but in service of a good cause, the only unprompted question that came via the Remnant's of various uh, communication channels uh, was something like this. The The asker wanted me to sort of blur his... Well, I, now I narrowed it down by 50% or whatever by, by, with that pronoun, but... Or, I'm, I'm really planning on hunting this person down. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So
3: there's there's so many pronouns now. Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh,
1: but this is someone who is currently uh, in working in or studying chemistry in college. Is strongly considering going into graduate school to study it at that level, but is concerned that even in that field, even in a hard science, uh, he might encounter uh, the obstacle of. Political bias in the academy and whether he should still pursue that course e- despite that concern. So that's the, the, the mm-hmm. question. Chemistry? Yeah, that was, that, that was the question. Uh, I, I think this is a uh,
0: question. Well, Steve, Steve, Steve's working behind enemy lines. Yeah, so I think I, go right, right, I'm
3: a, okay, an inmate these days. Um, yes, there's, the assault is actually moving to the sciences uh, from the identity politics left, uh, and a lot of the science departments are now under great pressure from the administrations. To uh, get priority hiring women and minorities, um, and on the other hand, um, well, this is a funny story about Berkeley. Is I've met a whole bunch of physics professors and a couple of chemistry professors who were closet Republicans. Turned out there was a little fan club. They read me, they read you, huh. they read all. But they're teaching physics. I mean, one guy's a quantum mechanics guy, and I just go in his office, and I'm amazed at the things on his blackboard. And so they're not involved in politics, but. Uh, um, So I think it's a reasonable concern. I think there's much less of it in the hard sciences. I think it's going to be harder for the total nonsense to take over there. One signal service somebody could do, I'm not sure who, but it would be to, I've thought about this for years in other areas, is to map out and find these people uh, and then give assistance to students who are thinking about graduate school. I mean, I always tell people who are interested in political science or mostly political science, where they might go, where they'll find some sympathetic faculty. And you know, there's six or seven places you can mention, likewise economics. Uh, but it might be worth doing that for the sciences. And my goodness, if you've actually got some conservative professors in the sciences, we well, ought to know who they are and be able to direct people to them. Um, there's a coordination problem there and a lot of effort behind it, but that would be helpful to
0: someone like that. I, I, it seems to me that just like I couldn't imagine going to graduate school for chemistry. I mean, I literally, I I can imagine a lot of strange things, um, but I can never imagine me going to graduate school for chemistry. But it seems to me if that's what you want to do with your life, go to graduate school for chemistry, and if you need to have arguments, have arguments, right? I mean, one of the nice things about the hard sciences is that there are still objective metrics um, that are on, your si- are on the side of merit, right, in a way that in the humanities, since everything is contextual and subjective, that it's a much more difficult fight to have. I'm just trying to give practical advice to our unseen, you know, questioner. Anybody else?
1: I'm just going to go to whom I see first.
2: Um, This is actually an interesting segue because I want to know about your advice for uh, challenging your supervisor, not necessarily on what you're talking about with, like, writing style, but on actual substantive questions, philosophy, politics, stuff like that. When, when is it appropriate and how to do it in the best way possible, I guess? Well, I, I wrote as one of the first tips in Curmudgeon's Guide, uh, don't suck up. <clears throat> and I've had people argue with me about that. I mean, people who know what they're talking about. And I think that, that if you're in show business... Or if you are working in the White House, sucking up is almost part of the job description. <laughs> but in a well, let's say you're in a well-run organization, and uh, you have a, uh, a good boss, or maybe he's not even. I'm sorry, I said he, but you know, I'm 75 years old. Uh, 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 let's say that he's he's maybe a couple rungs up from you. And so he's not your direct boss, but he's good. He's smart, he's, uh, he, he's not vindictive, and he doesn't need his ego stroked. That, by the way, describes most of the first-rate people I've met who've reached the top. You find a few who are very needy, very needy, and they really, it's, I think you had one. Uh, but most of these guys and gals are pretty doggone good they recognize it when you suck up if you are if you are flattering on that they get that and they think worse of you if you present an alternative viewpoint in the course of a discussion and that guy is listening in he's going to notice it he's not going to be Enthusiastic if you make a big show of it. If you uh, if you come across as uh, I'm willing to challenge it. Th- but if you simply make a thoughtful point which runs against the grain of the discussion and do it in a thoughtful way, you're going to get points. Occasionally you'll be wrong. Occasion- but if you if you're in a, if you're in an organization where you do not feel comfortable challenging uh, a supervisor on something, then you got to start thinking about Is this place for me?
0: Yeah, I mean, one, 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 which Charles glanced at is if you do it in front of a bunch of other people and it seems like you're preening or, or putting on a show, like, that's a bad idea. If you do it one-on-one, you know, uh, and you just have, you know, hey, look, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with you kind of approach. I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I, agree with Charles entirely. There are people definitely in Washington who love, especially in Washington, who Love being sucked up to I instantaneously distrust people who compliment me and um, and that was such a shrewd comment Jonah <laughs> and it doesn't mean that that I automatically I, I automatically become suspicious that they want something and it doesn't mean that they are that they do sometimes it's very sincere and very flattering and but my initial particularly in green rooms I like at television networks, when uh, people come up to me and they give me their card. Oh, you just do amazing work, and blah, 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 blah. It's clear they don't know who I am, but they're just sucking up. Uh, I, I, I bristle at that. Um, but yeah, if, if you're doing it in good faith and not for a show, I don't, certainly not here, but I mean, there are places in Washington, there are certainly congressmen who, and senators who would not take it well. Um, but that's also good to learn, Right I mean, if you go early on in your job working for somebody, say, "Hey, you know i 'm not sure I see it the same way you do on this. Could you explain it to me or here 's how I see it, and they they tear your head off, maybe you should look for another job, and it 's better to find that out sooner rather than later.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, that James Daymore guy at Google has learned that
0: yeah, right?
3: yeah that yeah, was geez. a good example right of challenging the orthodoxy and uh, yeah, I mean my little loss on it would be part of what is really being suggested there by your reference to needy people is. Character judgment, you have to size people up, right? A lot of politicians are very needy. My perception, by the way, in academia now, and I'm marinating in it, is an awful lot of professors are really quite insecure people. And there's a lot of ways that plays out. I think it is a factor in why they go berserk when you show up. Uh, uh, is, uh, and there's other, you know, there's actually the issues, too, that they're crazy about. But, and so that's a thing you've got to keep in mind, um, whatever the context may be.
2: Next I think all three of us would caution you about going into academia. <laughs>
1: uh, Steve Hayward ended, ended by uh, quoting someone who said, if you're, if you're young, <laughs> you should be conservative. Um, but it's a pretty chaotic time in the conservative movement. Mm. Um, so to young people who are looking to base their careers on a movement that you have all been a part of uh, in a variety of ways, what has changed that they should be looking at uh, from when you were starting out? Why do you think oh. this
2: podcast is called The Remnant? <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, one piece of advice I got from Ben Wattenberg that I thought was very good was I was involved in some sort of crazy political stuff towards the, the end of my time working with him, and uh, and he gave me a piece of advice of don't lie, because first of all, lies get you into a crap load of trouble, and you can't remember, what you, they're very hard to remember, but if you just tell the truth, you are kind of be okay, and um, I've kind of taken that principle to heart about the politics stuff that I've been writing about. There are a lot, I mean, we don't need to get into details, but there are a lot of people on the right who call themselves writers or journalists or thinkers and stuff, and they're playing a political game rather than actually saying what they believe to be true. And I get it. At your age, uh, there is a strong desire to get your foot in the door, to and, you know, uh, to make a good impression on people and all that kind of stuff. Um, and some of that is fine. Look, this is life. You have an obligation to yourself to, to have a career and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you find yourself that you actually have to lie um, or say things that violate your... or do things that violate your principles, don't do it. I mean, just don't... Don't be holier-than-thou necessarily, right? So I'll give you one piece of advice. You know, Steve wanted to know my mentors. Like the biggest one in my life was my dad, hmm. right? And I remember when I was working for Ben Wattenberg... Um, and I wanted to go move over to this television production company and become a um, television producer because I thought it would be cool. And um, and I called my dad and said, Dad, I, I got this problem. Ben wants me to stay working for him and, like, run his empire, and I want to go work for this other company. And my dad was like, well, then, you know, ask him for a lot more money. And I said, but, Dad, you don't understand. I'm just, I'm sick of this. I really need something new. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, it's it's killing my self-esteem, some of the stuff I have to do for Ben, and I want to do this new other cool stuff. And he said, okay, asking for a lot more money. And, <laughs> and we go around like this for a while, and then my dad almost never cursed, right? Um, he's, he's, and I'm getting myself all worked up and making a thing about it, and he says, Jonah, 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 let me, let me explain. I would happily eat dog shit for one billion dollars.
2: <laughs>
0: and I was like, what? Do you, what, what, do you, what? And he says, anything that doesn't violate your principles has a price, right? Hmm. If it's just something that embarrasses you or you feel is beneath you, there's a price for it. And now it may not be money, particularly your age, but it may be um, paying your dues, getting your foot in the door, doing like what I was talking about in the beginning about getting coffee for people and all that kind of stuff. That really doesn't violate your, your principles. It may violate your ego. But that's a currency. right? It's, you know, hard work shouldn't make you ashamed or feel like you violated something. Or doing something menial shouldn't make you feel like you violated some grand principle. It may hit your vanity. And if you can monetize this problem, it's a great way to think about it. And so like among my friends, these guys I was talking about before, we call it the Sid Goldberg rule. Because every now and then you get these job offers to do stuff that you don't necessarily want to do, but it pays a lot more money. And so the, one, of the, one of the many questions you should ask is, you know, among where does this lead? What can I do with this? Is this, you know, is this something I enjoy? Those are all legitimate questions. But one of them is, does it violate my principles? And whatever your principles may be. And if it doesn't, then at least you can put a price on it. And I think it's a, it's a helpful way to think about it. Can I
3: ask you, Jonah, uh, I have thoughts on this too. Can I ask you... I'll put it this way, I, it wasn't until I was about 25 that I figured out that my dad was the most extraordinary human being I'd ever known. Yeah. Not at 20, not at 22. When did you figure out that your dad was really your most preeminent mentor?
0: Well, yeah, it's funny because I was, and for those in the audience or in the listening audience who don't know, you know my mom's quite a character. <laughs> and, um, uh, and she was always much larger than life. Uh, you know, For those who don't know, my mom was a, a provocateur. One might say Um, she was a spy on the McGovern press plane during the 1972 Nixon uh, McGovern campaign and she was a major conservative literary agent. She wrote bodice ripper novels. Um, oh, so did
3: my mom. She really? was also yeah. Well, technically,
0: her genre was called glitz, not bodice rippers, but similar. Oh, yeah, um, my so,
3: mom did bodice rippers. Yeah, yeah. so she
0: wrote like yeah. Beverly Sassoon's yeah. novels and some of that stuff. <laughs> anyway, she was a quite a, When I was a little kid, she was a mounted police woman. She would come and scoop me up and ride me around on her horse. And you know, like, <laughs> Meanwhile, my dad was just this little nevishy Jewish intellectual. Um, and he, it was only. And yeah, you know, look, I'm still close with my mom. My dad passed 10 years ago. Um, love my mom. I'm proud of my mom. But it was. So you want, you want mentorship, right? I mean, I wrote about this in the eulogy. You can find it on the website uh, on National Review. It's called The Hot Bird. It was my eulogy for my dad. We had a family tradition in my, in my family where either my brother or I or both of us would go with my dad every Sunday to Murray's Sturgeon Shop to buy lox and bagels. You know, my mom would shout, release the bagel answers, and we would go out and walk three blocks up, you know, three blocks up, and we'd get lox and bagels and, you know, and some really heinous stuff like pickled herring. And come back with it. And my dad had very few hobbies. His hobbies were go to the other side of the couch to read a different magazine or book. Um, or go to Europe and look at museums. That was, that's about 80% of my dad's hobbies. And, um, uh, and the only other major one was going on long walks with his sons and talking about how terrible Stalin was. Or <laughs> weird things about East European history. And... And one day, because he was kind of an eccentric guy, we're walking to Murray's and we're holding hands. I couldn't have been older than seven, maybe maybe eight, maybe six for all I know. And we we're holding hands. All of a sudden, he stops dead, squeezes my hand. And I felt like I was about to step on something or whatever. And he turns to me and he says, Jonah, if you are ever arrested, if you ever pulled over in a South American country, <laughs> tell the officer, I'm very sorry, officer is there any way I can pay the fine right here? And I'm like, okay, daddy. But he was the kind of guy, if he thought he had good advice, he would give it to you, whether it was like a time bomb that would only be useful maybe 25 years later or something like that. Um, And so it was about the same age, about 25 into my 30s, where all of a sudden, partly because I became more eggheady and more, like my Mm -hmm. mom was a party gal, and she had great advice about girls and about life and about, you know, social stuff and all these kinds of things. And my dad had great advice about, you know, how to regard Bukharin. And, <laughs> um, um, and about how to be a journalist. My dad was a newspaper editor and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, and so, yeah, it was not until like I started taking myself seriously that I kind of realized what a big deal my dad was.
3: Yeah, I mean, Charles and I talked about this a little while earlier. I, I was think this is a general piece of advice, not uniform. I'm not sure if it's just a guy thing; it may apply to daughters as well. But uh, you guys out there, actually everybody, pay attention to your dad, your mom too, probably, but your dad. And I'll bet you're going to find that there. It was the old cliche, but gosh, my parents got smarter as I got older. Yeah, they've right? yeah. been saying that for a while, but. Uh, I mean, it was like the old Tolstoy line: not all happy families are alike, and so that right, it's not uniform. But uh, you, know, and I couldn't, I don't, you know, I couldn't—I don't—you know—I couldn't see that. And, when I was and, twenty. And to, be, right? to be
0: fair, if you know that that's not good advice for yourself, you already know that, right? If, if all of right. a sudden you're like, "Well," you you know, know, the three of us are pretty lucky in that yeah, regard. Yeah. If if, if but, your dad was burning you with you know an iron, you know,
3: yeah, then that's you already know idea.
0: that you know. You, oh, well, you know, maybe you had a point. You know, you don't don't, don't worry right. about it. You
3: know. But I'll say one thing about the sorry. That back to the question. Um, we don't want to do rank punditry today. That's right. So we won't talk about the current disruption in the conservative movement by contemporary figures. Um, I'll just say two things that relate. One is I think a lot of the – we've talked about this. A lot of the fights conservatives have had for generations are actually healthy. have been good for us, made us better and smarter. Uh, they're usually on the level of ideas and not the way it's falling out right now, which I think may lead to permanent ruptures. But the second thing is um, – it bears on a lot of different things we brought up here – is um, – one thing that's so different from when I was starting out, you know, out of college in 1980-81 is the nature of the news cycle. And I'll connect to your question this way. Uh, you know, back when Charles's book came out, Losing Ground in 84, or you'd have a major article, or, or AEI yeah, would put out a, a study. It might be a segment on the news hour and PBS in the evening, op-ed article in the paper the next day. Three or four days later, the first edit- letters to the editors would trickle in. Two weeks later, perhaps, the Brookings Institution will put out a rebuttal. You'd have to go to the library and look up things and the tables in a right, or find a journal article off a stack. Uh, what happens now, uh, we're in the, the, now the 20-minute news cycle, yeah, right? no, that's true. I mean, I remember, you know, the Reagan people, uh, it just changed decisively in the Clinton years, so just 20 years ago, but the Reagan people would say, our day was dominated by what was in the paper in the morning, and we had to figure out what our response was going to be for the way the day was going to end. Well, now it's the next five minutes, right? Uh, And so this leads to this uh, advice, which is, um, and and I don't want to be sort of curmudgeonly and all the rest of that. But uh, I think you want to try and avoid the rapid fire social media circle, the Twitter business and getting into those fights uh, and try to have a longer term outlook on things. Um, Yeah. You'll be much better off. Everybody'll be better off. Conservative of movement will be better off. You'll be better off, and so and I'll stop. Yeah, you. I mean,
0: I, I, I should have said, make a long-term bet on your own integrity. That yeah. integrity will pay off in the long run. You're like, I'm part of, look, I'm in the Jonah Goldberg business. I, I, <laughs> I really don't want to like, be drinking puddle water and you know, like, you know, using my kid for slave labor. But um,
3: I mean, all three of us are on Twitter a bunch. I mean, i, yeah. I so we're I'm a little hypocritical. But I'm making a long-term
0: that. bet yeah. that you know if. I'm going to be proven right in the long run, even if I'm taking a hit right now. And that's sort of what the idea of the remnant is. And um, uh, and if you get caught up in the daily cycles, you can just get vertigo and get spun around. This is the age for you to read serious things. Ah. Because you still have attention spans. And um, uh, and there's not a single long-form thing I read in my 20s that I regret spending that time reading. Not one.
1: I'm going to abuse my position again uh, because I think this is a good question. Uh, but we'll see. We'll be the judge of that. So, most of the people in this room—I'm looking around this room—I know most of you uh, seem to be not from the Washington, D.C. area, but we have come here because coming to Washington is a thing that young people do now. Uh, but what, what do you advise? What, what advice would you give people, young people, about one whether coming here and staying? long-term is a good thing, and two, uh, uh, what you think about people who have a sort of ancestral pull to reverse the brain drain, as it were, and return to the place that they came from. And, I like don't know, Ohio, maybe. Yeah, maybe Ohio. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah. By the way, we will not have
2: 25-minute answers to every question. Yeah, so. I apologize. So we, we, oh, have, yeah. Uh, we have a lot of...
0: We just have so much wisdom to give. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: It's, isn't it odd that it works out that way? <laughs> Washington is not the real world. And, for example, if you want to be effective, and if you want to make people's lives better, if you're here for idealistic reasons about using government to make people's lives better, you can do a lot better job of that working on uh, local government in Columbus, Ohio, or in... Uh, Topeka, Kansas, or on a smaller scale. If you want to see what's happening in terms of effective programs, don't come to Washington. Uh, get involved in, in uh, government at, at lower levels. And the the other thing about Washington, I'll just say specifically about the Hill. And this is bias, all right, in my part. Uh, I think the Capitol Hill is toxic. I agree. And I think it's especially toxic for uh, people in their early 20s. Because it is it, it is a a nasty game up there in some respects, and a trivial game in others, where where you're trying to you're you're doing politics, but you're doing politics at a kind of meaningless level. And the the most toxic thing about it is the people are given responsibilities for which they are utterly unprepared. So that I remember one time that uh, I was briefing the Republican staff on the Welfare Committee. And I was there with Robert Reichauer, who was uh, later to become head of Brookings, I think, but was a well-known scholar on the left. And we were, after about the first 15 minutes, Bob and I were jointly trying to educate these ignoramuses on what had been done in welfare policy. We were no longer debating with each other. We wanted these people who were whispering in senators' ears who knew nothing about this to get some sense of the substance. So the world of AEI is just in terms of moral values and integrity and substance and the rest of it, worlds away from Capitol Hill. And the same is true of Brookings and, and, and other places. If you're going to come to Washington, stick on this side of the hill.
0: Um, I, I put it a little differently. Um, just as I think, I think Charles is right that getting out of Washington and working at the grassroots level is a better way, if you're idealistic about the power of government, to do things. But it's also better for your career, in the sense that if you actually have hands-on experience out in the field, like people who join the Army to come back, their, higher, their, their, their attractiveness as job applicants in Washington or as politicians is higher, not lower. Because everyone who hangs out here, you're competing with other people who just hang out here. Um, you go out into the rest of the country and you get some actual professional expertise and you want to come back to Washington, you are more valuable, not less valuable. Because you have something different to add On the Capitol Hill part, I think it's entirely true that it's toxic. Part of the reason why is that it is like a vast college campus up there, and you're enough young, attractive people, and you end up dating, and you end up fighting over, um, you know, what's it, status class anxiety, right? Someone's got a slightly higher title, slightly better ID badge. They're a slightly more important advisor to some subcommittee on this, that, or the other thing. And you start competing over these things because you're a careerist and all the rest. And then you end up at the age of 30, and all you know is Capitol Hill. And the only way you can translate that expertise is to become a lobbyist. And sometimes to become a lobbyist on stuff that you're actually not interested in, but it's the only thing that you actually have a comparative advantage on. Like, I knew a guy who was one of the country's foremost experts on low-flow toilet flush regulation. And... And then he wanted to get off the hill and was like, the only people who wanted to hire him were plumbing people because they're the only ones who valued his expertise. And so I think it's a not a bad place to spend a little time but uh, at the beginning of your career, but get the hell out. Much like think tanks. Think tanks are a great place to spend a couple of years. AI is a wonderful place to spend a couple of years. But, you know, you spend too long here, you begin to think that this is the world and you don't know anything else. There's only one button on the thing, dude. <laughs> uh, so we've talked a lot about mentorship. How do we find a mentor? Do we go out and look for one? Do they just come to us? Guys,
2: I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, just because it's it's so much dumb luck. Uh...
3: Yeah, I mean uh, there, there isn't a sort of a, a by the numbers formula for that. Um, I mean, I think I'd want to talk to you about, you know, what are your interests, what are your ambitions, where you want to go, where you want to be when you grow up. I'm not exactly that broad, but um, uh, and um, you know, some of the people have been of great influence on my life. It's more than just Stan Evans and my dad and three or four others I can mention. It's not sort of official. You are now my mentor, right? right? Um, but but I do think, um, uh, especially here. I mean, I know this place. I've been gone for a while, but I still know it pretty well. I think it's perfectly appropriate to actually say to someone. I'd like to learn. I think I can learn some things from you, and I'd like to do that if I some way or fashion. It doesn't mean you shadow them for a day or whatever like that, but I think I would be that straightforward about it. Um, Don't other, ring
0: someone's doorbell and say that. Like, it, right. Come yeah, up to yeah, them in the that's office. That's you know. But, yeah, but, but, but I
3: mean, some of the best. I mean, you know, I consider Chris Demuth a mentor of mine, the previous person who recruited me here way back in the 1990s, and it, I never sort of asked him for advice. I just watched
2: and listened, and I, ah, I see. So you want to hang around people if you can, and. Yeah, just pick up on that. And a lot of of this is finding somebody who does what you want to do very well, even if you aren't working directly for them. So you look around the people who are in external affairs, and uh, I I would recommend always looking at them in terms of what can this person teach me, even if this person is completely unaware that they're teaching me this.
0: So you've talked a little
3: bit about all the things you've learned and all the different careers that you've had, but if you were 24 again,
1: what kind of job would you be looking for?
0: Um, I'm going to go first on this one. Um, one of the things I, I, I uh, tell young people um, is that your 20s is the only time in your life where you can afford to be poor. And I mean that quite seriously. Um, in your 20s, you... you you're probably not married. I mean, these are, you know, we're talking about broad generalizations, right? But, um, like, I went off to Prague when I was 21, and if I tried to do that today, I'd lose my house, I'd lose my job, I'd lose my wife, um, I would have to declare personal bankruptcy. Things start to own you more than you own them as you get older. And um, not knowing, Anything about you personally? I think the idea of me saying, "Well, you know, I really think you know plastics. You should get into plastics." I just not yeah. comfortable saying it. I don't, you know, I, I, you know, um, I, I, sh- these guys could talk far more intelligently about interesting fields out there and all that kind of stuff. But sort of the point I was making about the being a television producer is, it's okay to pick a wrong job. Some of the, you know, the, unless you're at home. Playing call of duty, you know getting high, doing nothing, um, uh, there's really no such thing as truly wasted time at your age um, because you learn so much even from your mistakes, and sometimes you make friends or the mistake actually points you in the direction of where you actually want to go um, but i don 't have like here 's the job for you
2: uh, I want to build i hope build on on that if there's one thing that that I think is a mistake when you're twenty-four regarding your career is worried worrying about falling behind. Mm-hmm. So that I get people Particularly you know, in this crowd. you know my 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 uh hobby horse is to tell people don't go directly to graduate school out of college. Don't don't go to law school uh, unless you love the law deeply. Don't go don't go to get an MBA. Get the hell out of Dodge. You have proved uh, that you are very good in one setting, which is the academic setting. And if you go to graduate school, you're just going to be hanging around the same people you've always hung around with. You'll be continuing to do well in the environment you know. And don't worry about these other people getting ahead of you because it doesn't work that way. Uh, I went back to uh, graduate school at the age of 28. And... uh, I wouldn't trade the period before that when I was wandering around Thai villages for anything. A lot of my most, uh, what I think are my best insights that went into books I wrote 20 years later, I discovered in Thai villages. And D- Jonah's right. This, You're never going to be able to do this again. And by the way, there is a collateral advantage to, uh, to, to just using these years to uh, experiment with things and going out with to different parts of the world, it's a good way to have some prophylaxis against midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of there are a lot of lawyers out there who uh, have become good lawyers and they're making five hundred thousand dollars a year. Who quit in their mid thirties because they're so sick of being lawyers and they haven't done anything except be lawyers in a job they didn't really like, and they go out and become I, woodworkers or something. I know so something. many unhappy lawyers. Yeah yeah so so uh,
0: my age I mean right
2: yeah. so, so so believe me, you can rise to the top of the heap uh and having spent your twenties doing all sorts of different things that did not directly contribute to your career now, since you asked about fields, though, I'll tell you uh if I had the intellectual talent to do it, and I'm not sure I do because my mathematics may not be strong enough uh I think that uh, genetics and neuroscience and AI and these things would be absolutely fascinating ways to spend a career. And I just say that personally. If I look at something and say, "Wow, is this going to be exciting over the next fifty years?" That's, but that's very personal in terms of what. schmooshing paint again. Do You have anything else? Or else?
3: Uh, yeah. Only I think that I think you shouldn't. I mean, I mean, of course, you want to find a good job and a you know. Career path makes sense, but I think the question you should start with first is, where do I want to be when I'm 40 or 50? What's my goal? Right? What will really, right? And here's, I think we're we're going to. I'm going to say, I think we said the same thing. Something opposite of what the curmudgeon uh, age and class have been saying, which these millennials these days, it's prolonged adolescence, not growing up fast enough. I think just the opposite. I mean, there's some truth to that, but on the other hand, I think there's a lot of value in, as I put it, germinating. And we were talking earlier about, uh, this is a variation of what you were saying earlier about people who flame out. We were talking about the example of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who writes The Great Gatsby at, what, age 24? Yeah, it's a brilliant piece of work. And it was all downhill after that yeah. in every way imaginable. Yeah, don't peak
0: early. Right. No,
3: I there, no I, there's something to that.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. seriously. Early success is a killer. I've been very yeah. worried about J.D. Vance, yeah. you know, thinking that, but he's handling it very well. But... Uh, yeah, you, you you are serving. If if you have a real craft, and I don't care whether it's learning how to administer offices or whether it's learning how to write books, there is a long apprenticeship to be served.
0: Also, just uh, again because the career advice thing rankles a little bit. Um, some things are also worth doing just if they make a good story later. <laughs> and. Um, and that certainly was my attitude in high school, and that was a bad attitude in high school. <laughs> but later in life, it, 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 gets, it, it becomes better and better advice, Privately, because, as you put it, I hadn't thought about it in those terms of the midlife crisis problem. Um, I, I am proud, truly proud, that I've made, by my count, at least three college students cry talking them out of going to law school. Um, because the one thing I will not, I, I cannot stand hearing is, well, I don't know. I don't think I want to be a lawyer, but you can do lots of things with a law degree. It's like I hate that. I, it's awful. And yeah. if, if you have that attitude, and I know there are people in this room who've said that, if you have that attitude, and then you're going to take out a student loan, mm. think again. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get out. Of, you're, first of all, you're a type A type. You are because you're here at AI. You're going to be competitive with the people around you. You're going to be. you You're going to be competing for summer associate gigs. You're going to get out of that. Then you're going to be competitive with people for clerkships. And then you're going to go to a law firm, and you need to get the salary to pay off your student loans. And you're going to do it for a couple years, and you're going to be competitive with each other. And all of a sudden, you're going to think about partnership track. And before you know it, you're a 45-year-old patent lawyer, and you want to kill yourself. <laughs> um, if you truly love the law, and you think you would want to do it even if it didn't pay anything at all, um, if you like the smushing the paints part, go to law school. But otherwise, be careful. Uh, hey, Jack, actually, this young lady has been
3: eager and you're
2: oh.
0: even favoring the right side, which I encourage <laughs> in other things, but, you
2: know. Right. You. Uh.
1: And my question is, um, what is success for you?
0: Interesting. That'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, you want to go first? You, you always wait till the end and then we feel bad for talking That's to you. That's
3: all right. No, uh, I, you know, I'm going to do the simple stuff of, you know, job satisfaction, happiness, and family. And you've got those and, you, you know, even your job is you know, just feeling that you've achieved the sort of excellence of what your goals are.
2: Well, I've written books about this. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> now you're in trouble. <laughs> I, I, let me introduce a, a phrase that David Brooks came up with that I think is really apt in terms of thinking about success. He had this in his book, The Social Animal. He talks about ambition anxiety. Hmm. And ambition anxiety, I certainly felt it uh, in my 20s and 30s, which is I wanted to be famous. I I didn't want to be famous so people would interrupt my dinner. I wanted to be, you know, really good at my field and recognized and so forth by by, uh, my peers. And I was very anxious about whether I would be a success. And what David Brooks points out uh, in the course of this is that if you achieve that measure of success, that you are well known, that you're David Brooks, for example, that it relieves the ambition anxiety. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, it's, and that is really true. That's a nice thing. I haven't felt ambition anxiety ever since Losing Ground was published, and I did feel ambition anxiety before that. The thing is, It does not add to your happiness. It relieves a source of stress. It relieves a source of unhappiness. And here's where, if I could encourage you to read the Curmudgeon's Guide, if you haven't done it, the the latter tips are the most important. Because the cliches are true. Um, Marriage can be problematic. I've had one that didn't work out. But a good marriage is the best thing that can ever happen to you. I mean it's uh, and and so it's worth spending a lot of effort <laughs> getting getting that kind of relationship. Uh, getting really good at what you do is just satisfying in itself. And uh, so that when I have written something that I really like, I love to reread it. <laughs> I will reread it again and again. The the. The the mantra you hear at AEI, because Arthur says it, I say it, Jonah says it, family, faith, community, and vocation, those are sort of the arenas in which you become a success in ways that last, in ways where where you feel proud of yourself, where you're satisfied with what's done, and it's very different from enjoyment.
0: Yeah. All but but
2: I but just just to, don't feel bad if you're feeling that ambition anxiety. I'm not telling you to try to get rid of it. Go ahead and and do your best to to become rich and famous because in time you're going to get these other forms of success as well. Yeah.
0: When, when you get on the other side of 40 like we are, um, a good thing to start thinking about is the difference between a resume and a eulogy. Oh, that's another David. Which is a David's thing. Um you know what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Do you want them to say, well, and at, the end, at the mere age of 28, he was the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services? Or do you want them to say he was this great father, great mother, great friend, did these wonderful things, look at all he's accomplished in life? And it's not to say that you live your life purely about your eulogy, which is kind of creepy. Um, it's just to remember that, you know, that your resume only explains a, one sliver of your life and the stuff I was saying before about Friends and family and these kinds of things, you'll have more life satisfaction. And if things go wrong in your career, it'll hurt less than if you if you put everything, if you make your entire life about your career, and then something bad happens in your career, it's a friggin' disaster. If you've got lots of friends, if you have a happy family, if you have other things going on in your life that you draw meaning and satisfaction from, and then you're fired or your job or you're laid off. It's bad, but you've got that social capital to fall back on, and I think it's something. Particularly in your 20s, you don't think about your social capital because you have so much of it that you just sort of take it for granted. But it, later on, it becomes really, really important. Um, I think we're happy to keep going for a while. We've gone for about an hour and 15 minutes. Why don't we say a couple more questions and then? Then
3: we'll... no, I have a last question for you two guys,
2: if you indulge okay. to me too. too some but people,
0: people, but yeah, we'll, yeah. If you've had your hand up for a while, keep it up. We'll do you guys, and then
2: and we'll, we'll, we'll give shorter answers. Big if true. (laughs) Um,
1: This is so great, by the way, so helpful. Um, So for those of us who did not do well on the bubble quiz, which is probably most of us because we're here at AEI, not being waiters or driving trucks, um, you know, I can't go back in time and join the Peace Corps after college, and I'm not going to leave AEI tomorrow. What are some realistic um, pieces of advice you can give us to just kind of get out of our bubble day by day.
0: Um, this is off the top of my head and it's not really from my own life experience, but it seems to me there's an enormous number of social things that create cross-sections of different kinds of people in Washington. Um, the mo- by far, like for Charles, he gets out of his bubble a couple times a week by going to play poker in, in West Virginia. And he sits with truck drivers and car dealership managers and whatnot. My my excursion outside of the bubble is I spend probably more time at my cigar shop than I do here. (laughs) And that place is full of everything from lawyers and car salesmen to uh, DC cops. And I'm not going to join some league or anything like that. But uh, finding some group, like I remember in my 30s, one of the places where I got the most interaction from people outside of my sort of social, political, professional bubble was at the dog park, because it was just the people from my neighborhood. And so there'd be bureaucrats from the federal government, and there would be people who worked in some store or whatever. And those are very useful, kind of fun things, just sort of remind you that this is not the whole world, or Capitol Hill is not the whole world.
2: Uh, churches are really good places. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say uh, volunteer to, uh, for something. Yeah. yeah but you have to choose your, because yeah, it's possible to choose a church. Uh, it's even more political is, uh, than AI. Uh, <laughs> political than, but, uh, but, but my wife is very active in a Quaker meeting. And uh, uh, I, I've been struck, and I'm a fellow traveler, I'm struck to the extent to which that's just a completely separate community. It's, uh, yeah. it's a community unto itself, and it's very rich and rewarding, and it's, and it's divorced from everything else. There are, or you can take, okay, so poker may not be your thing. Maybe you like kayaking. I don't know, but I bet there are kayaking clubs that will get yeah. you in with, with uh, people where you're spending weekends that are from a wide range of, of different things. But you have, to, you have to work at it for all the reasons that you already know. But Maybe the,
0: plan a bank heist with like, a, like an Ocean's <laughs> Eleven weird group of people. I mean, that's bonding. I mean, it was my experience, but anyway.
2: <laughs> but, but, but also, it's, uh, of course, the easiest way is to find a job similar to the one you like at AEI but that is in another part of the country and in a, in a part of the country that that would be fun and exciting to go to. You know, I think the Mountain West would be a wonderful place to live. Other people might want to go to New Orleans or something, but that's a more drastic move. Or you can do like the Murrays did and move out to Burkittsville, Maryland, and still be affiliated with AEI. That worked for me. Uh, it whether kind, we could,
0: kind of an apples and oranges situation there. <laughs>
1: Um, so I guess Jonah, you talked a little bit about, you know, you can place a price on things. How do you figure out your professional value and then make that ask? And I mean it not in a philosophical sense, but in a really practical sense. Like if you're supposed to put a desired salary on a job application, how do you choose a realistic number? Yeah,
0: I am, I am really terrible about this question because I haven't had to put together a resume or a job application in 20, 25 years, um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of a known quantity in my line of work, and it's like either you want to hire me or you don't want to hire me, either you want to pay for me to do something or not. Um, so my guess is that someone from HR here would have a better answer for this than I would. You know? Yeah,
2: and, and at this point, I'm going to give a piece of advice that I think maybe is the one you should most ignore, because it might be idiosyncratic. Uh, because I've been told that it makes a lot of difference, that that you should be pushing for the edge of the envelope, and uh, that uh, your starting salary, you know, over the years, that will make a big difference. Here's the way I have lived my life, and my wife has lived our lives. Um, I figure, hell, give me the job, I'll do really well, and I'll make it up. I've also lived my life, and my wife has lived my life, by trusting people. We've trusted people to reward us if we do well. We've trusted people to be honest with us when they do work around the house. We've spent our lives avoiding bargaining about almost anything. And as a result, um, I'm sure we paid too much for lots of stuff, and I'm sure that a smarter bargainer could have gotten advantages we haven't gotten It is so much more relaxing to live your life trusting your fellow human beings and uh, not trying to uh, treat your interactions with them as competitions. As I say, it's worked for me. But I'm not sure that just may be, the, you know, the luck of the Irish. Now we
3: actually have some disagreement here a little bit. Not so much hey, disagreement, but you're. She was asking for a real practical, nuts I know and bolts answer. And we didn't give it to her. You're asking the wrong people because we're free people who sit around and say, I can't believe they pay us to do this at all, right? That's what right. so I thought for a long time. Um, I, I, I guess I supposedly have some expertise in this. Not really. I was 20 years ago now. Appointed by the governor of California to the commission set up by the voters to set the salaries for all the state officials, governor, lieutenant governor, all the way down, and the state legislature. Fascinating story because this was supposed to be an inside job to give everybody a raise. And guess who's the person who stopped it? It was it was me. I was not popular with Willie Brown. He would attack me in public. And anyway, uh, but we'd do all these comps how people are paid, and we had a you know the personnel people come in and brief us about how all these sorts of things are done. And we came away from all that Says, yeah, but we're talking about grubby politicians and none of that matters. Um, <laughs> so I would say one thing uh, as a practical matter. Uh, this goes into any field. Um, if um, you want to bargain for a uh, uh, you know, higher salary, the best thing to have in your pocket is another job
0: offer. Yeah, that's what I was going to come back to.
3: It's, right. I, you know, and so, you know, that's... Uh, that's
0: but, but the point yeah. there is, I think, because I run into this all the time with myself and also with younger friends who were asking for advice about this stuff. If you do have another job offer, even for a job, actually particularly for a job that you don't want, don't keep it a secret, right? I mean, lots of people say, well, I don't want the job, so you know whatever. Go to your boss, go to your supervisor and say, hey, look, I don't want to leave, but I also don't want to feel taken advantage of. And yeah. they're willing to pay me more than what you're paying me for. you know, is there somewhere we can meet in the middle? And even if they say no, they're going to feel guilty about it. And they're going to be on the hook, and they're going to understand that the next time salary review is up, that you've got a pretty good case because we always in, in, in pure economics terms. You always value those things that there are demand that demand you, for.
3: you should, ask, if they do say no, you should, or maybe along the way, you should ask, uh, "What should I do to get a promotion, yeah. or to get a higher, uh, to get a raise?" Can you just give me some advice or tell me what what uh, would work? Yeah. So hard to do. not not an easy thing to do, but.
1: Earlier you said in your 20s you still have the attention span to read and nobody regrets reading and uh, form stuff and not social media. Could you each give maybe one or two things that you think young people should read, whether they're books or oh. even magazines or uh, something?
0: Like that. That. that was going to be...
3: This is, no, no, we're not. I was <laughs> going to say as our exit question, do the Desert Island book. Okay. Uh, which, by the way, my Desert Island book, I always use G.K. Chesterton, Hawkins' Complete Guide to Shipbuilding. Um, but... <laughs> Now, there, I'll mention two things. I'll give you a book and then an essay. Um, and one is a very practical. Uh, I read once a year at least and sometimes twice a year, and I inflict it on every student in every class I have uh, Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language. And you're only nodding your head. Everyone should read that every year, and there's the six rules for writing it gives toward the end of it, which you should put up over your word processor, especially when you're young. Uh, my yeah, desert island book. I just want to see what you guys might say, and so I'll sit in a minute and collect your My thoughts. wheels are
0: spinning here. I'm, I'm uh,
3: the one book that I read in high school, and I still read it now, and I go back to it a lot, and it's this slim little book by C.S. Lewis called The Abolition of Man. Some of you may know it, I think, right? It's just 75 pages long. You can read it in one sitting. Written around 1947, I think, or maybe even earlier than that. And the extraordinary thing about it is, is that he picked up at that early time... Trends in English literature and poetry criticism, and foresaw everything we see today of you know, sort of postmodern subjectivity and nihilism, and explained what the consequences of it would be. And he did it with some very memorable language about you know with men without chests and uh, um, and anyway. It's a, I think it holds up extremely. It's still in print. Holds up extremely well through the years and is a wonderful. I mean. I was ready to go to college and face all the crazy things in college. I read that when I was a senior, a little early, I suppose, but I remember reading it, and I had to read it again because it was over my head in some ways, but then, ah, I recognized. It gives you pattern recognition, as social scientists would say, and I reread that at least once a year, and I've assigned it to some classes I've taught. I try to sneak in all kinds of mischief in my classes.
2: Yeah, C.S. Lewis uh, has single-handedly been responsible for changing the lives of more people than almost any author I can think of. Yeah. Uh, his uh, his little book, Mere Christianity, uh, got me thinking seriously about Christianity after having not having done so uh, for all of my adult life. And I read that uh, when I was, what, 60 years old maybe? And uh, I've been, now Abolition of Man, I've got to go read. Otherwise, I do not have, yeah. you know... The, the book that had the most uh, influence on me, I first read at the age of 19 uh, in Philosophy One at Harvard, uh, The Nicomachean Ethics, and mm. uh, I blew it off because it didn't seem nearly as much fun as Plato's dialogues. And then at the age of 42, I read it again and said, mm. this guy is really smart, and uh, this is how you have to live your yeah. life. So it's kind of hard. I'm not sure. No, I don't have any. Uh, read, okay, read The Nicomachean Ethics, yeah. but get it 20 years sooner than I did. That's, that's my <laughs> advice. Uh,
0: gosh, I have such different answers for this stuff. Um, I mean, the Desert Island question is a little different than the question that you're asking, right? Um, uh, I really regret the number of sort of classic novels that I did not read. And one of my fantasies is when, uh, I mean, the list of things I'm planning on doing when I get my F.U. money is really, it's... it's <laughs> It's, it's, it's long, and it's rich, and it's somewhat vindictive. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, like when I, when I went to Prague, right? I read War and Peace then. And I'm so glad that I read War and Peace then. I really would love to dive into Russian literature. Um, mm. I, I would really love to reread the Bible, which I have not looked at in any detail in quite a long time. That would be more of a desert island kind of thing. Um, but in terms of more practical stuff, because uh, we're supposed to be a little practical here. Um, for the people who actually plan on spending a career in conservative stuff, I wish someone would write a competing book to it. And people who listen to this podcast know that what I'm going to say. is George Nash's The Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945 is immensely useful just to, just to get a sense of where you fit in this timeline. Because a lot of people don't realize that conservatism is the most recent political ideology, significant political ideology in America, not the oldest one. I would, you know, uh, some of those Woodward books are very useful. I mean, I, I don't necessarily love them, but to understand politics and how Washington works, there's a lot of interesting things in there. But, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for, for sage stuff, you really can't do worse than C.S. Lewis or, to some extent, G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. And I also, and again, this is just because I'm a geek, um, going back and rereading old editions of magazines, <laughs> uh, particularly the Eggheady magazines. Yeah give you a sense, again, that you're part of a tradition, you know, you're part of an argument that's been going on for a very long time, and that to remind you that uh, a lot of the stuff that feels new and really present and, and novel and scary right now is actually part of a very old story in American history. Uh, the thing I would always, I've always wanted to read cover to cover, Back to the Desert Island, is the History of Western Civilization by the Durants. Um, I know there are problems with it, yeah. but it's kind of like a cliff note yeah. thing, and I, I was, there I have these big gaps in like yeah. Okay. You know, I need to know more about Spinoza. Who doesn't <laughs> really though? Uh, all right, so uh, we have, Was there one last person who had their hand up? Or are we done with all of you, youngins? Um, okay, so any final thoughts before we? get I to just the hell can't believe this
3: old guys could hold up this long.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, that's a show of hands, just out of my own curiosity. I don't know if, how many of you want to be writers when you grow up. Not many. Jack, you get no advice from me. Uh, I get no advice here for me. You get lots of advice from me. How many of you want to stay in Washington? How many of you want to go back to where you grew up? How many? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's good. That's healthy.
3: Can but, I ask one? Yeah. How many of you know what the phrase walk the stacks means?
2: <laughs> well, of course they don't. <laughs> There's no need to
3: anymore. Well, you, my problem, I thought I was just saying read old magazines. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. you know, I worked on my Reagan books way before the internet gets going, and yeah. that was a lot of it means walking, stacks. walking
0: through the library looking at old
3: stuff. And, and that's, the stuff the, you find st- by in accident
2: the, in the stacks of the big big libraries. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You could do that in the Library of Congress uh, when I was writing uh, yeah. Losing Ground, and I would always run into stuff next to the book that I was looking. at. Yeah, exactly. You,
0: I, mean, I was just talking to Jack about this recently. If you get a chance, if you're in New York, go to the Strand Bookstore. Oh. If you're in Portland, go to Powell's, um, I guess Second Story Books here. Walk around used bookstores. Yeah, And just look at titles and stuff. And um, it's an incredibly useful thing. And you can buy books cheap and even if they just, which happens to me all the time, they just sit on your shelf and haunt you. <laughs>
1: um,
0: that in and of itself is useful. Um, also, uh, and we'll, we'll close with this since we're, we're fresh out of sagacity. First of all, if you have like serious questions, you know, I, I'm not in the market to be 20-odd people's mentor, but if you have questions or if we, I can be of help, or these guys, you, you can send them emails and ask them questions. The worst thing that happens is they don't get around to answering you too soon. It's okay. They'll feel guilty and they'll eventually get back to you. Um, but uh, um, the really important takeaway, I think, from today is if you're ever driving in South America <laughs> and you're pulled over. <laughs> um, no, anyway, I really want to thank you guys. I know this is not what you uh, necessarily need to do during a work day. We really appreciate it, and thank you all very much. Okay, uh, as you might have guessed, we've already finished conversation with Steve and Charles. Jack, what did you think of the thing?
1: I'm I'm grateful for the wisdom that was on display. I've, I was looking for direction, and I think I found it. I'm going to go out and become a uh, what a cattle rustler in Montana now, I think. Uh, just wait until the book comes out, then you can do that. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, please let us know what you thought about it. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, you can go to JonahGoldberg.com. You can uh, tweet us at Jonah Remnant. You can email us at theremnantpod at gmail.com. And and thanks again to whoever sent the uh, Slash Dingo t-shirt. I really love it. And um, I'll see you guys next week.